From the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, starting with verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. From the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 15, starting with verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for our gospel reading? A reading from the gospel of St. John, chapter 20, starting with verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple start for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. 
As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. And so I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. <laughs> he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell, him, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. He is risen. Got to throw in another one for good measure. Celebrate enough this morning. It's good to see you all this morning. So the Bible begins in darkness. If you've thumbed through the Bible, if you've looked at the very beginning of the Bible, if you've never read it before, or maybe you just picked it up on a Gideon's nightstand in a hotel or something, um, you know that if you thumb through at the very, very beginning of the Bible, we see darkness. The creation of the world begins with darkness. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. But it also says the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And if you keep reading, you see that God speaks says, let there be light. And we're told that there was light. When God speaks, things happen. When Preston speaks, nothing happens. But when God speaks, things happen. And if you keep reading, you see that God speaks, let there be light. And we're told there was light. You get this pattern, right? God speaks and things happen. And God continues to speak and there's a separation between the waters and the sky. There's plants and animals and eventually there's people. Creation begins in the dark, and then God speaks. Darkness, God speaks. The other night, we were at home, and Lucy was having a tough night, my five-and-a-half-year-old. And she got to bed late. She wasn't sleeping well. And I didn't think much of it. But when I went to tuck her in, I flicked on the light, and light bulb burn out right at that moment. You know that experience, right? And I just thought, okay, it's late and we're all tired. And so we're not going to read a, a regular book. We're going to read a book on the iPad. We're going to sit in the dark tonight and I'll take care of this tomorrow. Okay. Um, little did I know that she would have some trouble all throughout the night. <laughs> it's not um, uncommon for her in the middle of the night for me to be sleeping in our room and to hear, daddy, daddy. And I go in, I lay down next to her for a few minutes. She falls asleep again. And then I go back to our room. What is uncommon is to hear that three times in the middle of the night and have to do that a few times. Now, remember, there's no light in her room at this moment. So I walk in. Our daughter's room's a mess, okay? I'll just be honest with you here. Uh, make you other parents feel better. Our daughter's room is constantly a mess. And so I'm dodging toys when I'm going in. I'm kind of trying to feel my way around. I'm stepping on a lot of toys. And all the kids' toys now are little 
tiny and they're like, they hurt. And so stepping on all these things and I don't know what's happening and I'm, I, I don't know where everything is. And then, oh, I step on a towel that is kind of wet. She obviously spilled something and thought that her way to clean it up was just to put a towel on top of it and went to sleep. I don't know what's happening. It's the dark. I can't see. Um, Lucy had a variety of needs that night and I go into a room that's a complete mess. In the dark, we can still kind of tell when things aren't right. When you're stumbling around in the dark, you can tell there are things that are out of place. There are things that are a mess. But we can't see those things clearly, can we? We can't fully see the order or the structure or what needs to be put right. I could tell that Lucy's room was not as it should be. I could tell there were pitfalls that I needed to avoid. But without light, I couldn't tell what those things were. John begins the story that we just read, the story of the resurrection with these words. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, begins in darkness. Does that sound familiar? Two thirds of the way through the Bible, John is pointing back to the beginning. Remember when there was darkness and what happened? God spoke and something happened. (laughs) So he's telling us that God is speaking. John's telling of the Jesus story is full. If you read John's gospel, which is really John's way of talking about Jesus, you can see there's all these images of darkness and light. He begins his gospel, within the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And that in the beginning points back to Genesis. This light shined in the darkness and the darkness did not receive it. There's this imagery of darkness and light. So John is telling us the story of Jesus that Jesus is bringing about a new creation. So there was a creation and now Jesus is bringing about a new creation. Darkness is there and God is speaking. Where in your life is it still dark? Where in our world is it still dark? I bet you all of us can think of a million things this morning, the places where we see darkness. Some of those places in our lives are obvious, I think. Loss of a marriage, a job, uncertainty about faith. All of those things sound like darkness, don't they? They're obvious. They're like living in a dark room and seeing something is amiss. We know that something's wrong, but we can't see the whole picture. But many of us are unaware of the things that are dark. We're unaware of those things that are amiss. We have things that we believe that are false. We have narratives about ourselves and narratives about the world that are untrue. And we know that something's not right, but we can't see it fully. In a limited perspective, we believe that certain things provide security for us and for the world, and we hold on to those things. We hold on to those things as the hope for the world. Maybe it's money, maybe it's approval, maybe it's a political worldview, but none of those things will last. We're introduced in our passage today to a new person. She's only appeared in John's gospel right before this at the cross. We know really nothing of her history, Mary Magdalene, but we do know that she was faithful. That's what we know. She had walked with Jesus. She knows him. She has a relationship with him. And she's at the tomb, perhaps to remember him, like you would, to grieve at a tomb, to grieve him fully, to experience connection with him. She was not going expecting resurrection. In fact, John tells us that, that they didn't really think, they didn't put the pieces together (laughs) that he was gonna rise again. She's going to grieve, to experience some sort of connection at this loss that has happened. And she's the first witness, the first one to experience that light has dawned. 
Now, it's still dark at the beginning of this passage, but something about the world is different. It's a miss. It's, it's different from what it was last night. She knows that something's off, but she doesn't fully know what it is. She doesn't see clearly. But Mary, because she doesn't see everything clearly, she holds a false narrative about what's going on, a false narrative about the world. And it's hard to blame her for that, okay? Grief tends to bring those things out of us. We're, we cling to what we can see closely and what's near, okay? For the moment, the events of that morning just look like salt on an open wound, okay? Those who followed him have given their life to this guy, and it just looks like he failed. He died. It didn't pan out in the end. He lost. And that meant if he lost, then that meant that they lost because they gave their whole life for him. They were fools. They cashed in all their chips on this one dude, and he turned out to be a failure. That's what they're thinking in this moment. And now, on top of everything, someone stole his body? Seriously? It wasn't enough that he died and we lost everything. Now somebody stole his body? What is going on? So, so what Mary does is she makes sense of this story in the only way that she can put it together. So what she says is, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. It seems like this is a narrative that she keeps repeating over and over again. They've taken him out of the tomb and we don't know where, where they've laid him. It's of course not the full picture, is it? She doesn't know the whole story, but it's the way she's piecing everything together. I wonder if you have phrases, narratives in your life that you repeat over and over again that help you kind of make sense of the world. Some of them may have some truth in them. Some of them may be just kind of slightly amiss. Some of them may be broken narratives that we believe about ourselves or we believe about the world. Mary is making sense of the world by they have taken him. So she runs to find Peter and John and she repeats this narrative again. It's urgent that we find out what happened to Jesus's body because they've taken him, they've laid him somewhere. So the disciples run too then, okay? So she runs to them and then, so there's a lot of running going on in this passage. Like they're constantly moving, constantly running. And this is where it gets comical, okay? The younger man, John, the text says, gets there first. Now it's funny if we believe, and I do, that John actually wrote this story because he's just making it really clear that he beat Peter to the tomb, okay? He was faster and he was younger. Um, he makes it clear that Peter, he beat Peter to the entrance and he says it a few times. <laughs> so just to be clear, I beat Peter there. But he calls himself the one who Jesus loved. He doesn't say his name, okay? So he says that over and over again. I'm younger and faster than Peter. Are we all clear on this is what John is saying. When they arrive at the tomb, they see not only is the body gone, but there are linen strips lying there. Not only, they believe, has someone taken the body, it looks like they unwrapped it from its clothes, which is weird. Why on earth would you, de would you see, do that ever? John sees the linen, but he's hesitant. He holds back a little bit. He doesn't rush into the tomb. Peter is not afraid to rush places, if you know the, uh, the biblical story. He goes places quickly, okay? So Peter finally gets there, but remember, John was faster than him, and he doesn't wait this is normal for Peter. He rushes to action. He's quick. He charges into the tomb. Peter sees the cloths lying there and he sees something else. That the cloth that went around Jesus's head wasn't with the other ones. It was separate off by itself. That's weird too. So they think someone stole the body. They unwrapped it first. They took time to take the head covering and place it away from the other linens. So the clothes look like a collapsed balloon that the air has gone out of. That's odd, that's strange. 
As the younger disciple walks into the tomb, John, his view of the world begins to change. It tells us that faith wells up in him. His perspective changed. It's like somebody flipped on the light switch and he can see the world more clearly. His narrative has changed. This is no longer a case of a stolen body that we have to solve. God's creative power is at work. God has spoken just like he did at creation. He's spoken a new word. Something different is happening. And John takes the the leap to believe that the world has fundamentally changed. Now, the story then seems to pause and switch a little bit and pick up with Mary Magdalene, who's crying. She weeps. She's grieving over what she has lost. And I picture, I don't know if this is true, but I picture Mary repeating the same narrative over and over again. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. They've taken, they've taken him out of the tomb. I don't know where they've laid him. We've got to figure out where, where they laid him. They took him out of the tomb. I don't know where they've laid him. And she cries, and tears are necessary here. They're normal, okay? They're right. We grieve loss because we don't see the world that we want to see, and that's right to do that. Our perspective is limited, and so we grieve. What are the narratives and phrases that we repeat over and over again in difficult times? Maybe they're from your parents, from your upbringing, from trauma in your life. Narratives like, man, I will never quite be lovable enough. Right? I'm never going to fit anywhere, never going to find a tribe or a home. Right? Well, in order for anything good to happen, I've got to get my act together, and I'm not capable of getting my act together. These are all false narratives we believe, right? I I really, I have to fake it in order to be acceptable to other people. It's the goal of my life. I got to fake it enough. Or good will never happen for me. Or I can never depend on anyone else in community or family life. I have to do it all by myself. Or I just don't need anyone. It's all about me. These are false narratives that we can believe. We also have narratives about the world that we believe that are false. Well, the problem with the world is those people. Have you heard this at all? Maybe Trump supporters, the Dems, that's another one. Immigrants, white supremacists, terrorists. If we can fix them or get rid of them, then the world's gonna be fixed and the world's gonna be right, right? Mary is living in the dark. She doesn't see how the world has changed. She's She's holding on to a narrative, and and it's a false narrative, but it's all that she knows. It's all that she can piece together about the world. And then, when the time is right, she's called to stoop down and look in the tomb, and there's a surprise. She's surprised by the Easter story. Suddenly, angels appear. Now, now where did they come from? They weren't there a few minutes ago. (laughs) They're randomly angels there, okay? The angels ask Mary, and I think they ask us today, Why are you crying? What is it that you've lost? Tell me about what you've lost. I love how gentle the angels are with her. This is not a snap out of it moment, I don't think. It's a tell us the pain of your loss moment. What stories are you now having to give up about yourself or about the world? Where are you now? And Mary repeats her narrative to the angels. She says, they have taken it away. What is it that you feel is taken away from you? Taken away my home, my husband, my wife, my children, my dignity, my purpose, my hope. They have done this. This has happened to me. 
Notice that even as she sees the angels, she still hangs on to her narrative. So she's seen angels and she still is holding on to it. They still, they, they've taken it. It's so hard. This is the way I understand the world and I'm holding on to that because that's all that I've ever known. It is so hard for us to let go of those stories. It's so hard for us to let go of those things that we believe. Sometimes we're convinced of our perspective of the world and an angel can show up and we still are convinced of it. Mary's grieving, but Mary's grief is not just Mary's grief. She grieves for the world. Mary's grief is the world's grief. The world is not as it should be, and the world doesn't see light as it should. It's Israel's grief that they've been oppressed for generations, and it's our grief today. It's a good and holy grief. It is right to grieve about the world. And in the midst of our grief, we often hold to many assumptions about the world, false narratives about what is happening. And we all do that. All of us hold on to false narratives. Some of them sound better than others. Some of them are like portions or parodies of the truth. But we all need resurrection, every one of us. We need to see the light. As we recognize this world not rightness, we stand with Mary and we affirm the places that are dark and chaotic, the places of our world that are dark and without form or purpose. But we don't see in the dark. Then we see this strange figure who's standing there. Who is this guy? Mary makes a guess. He must be the gardener. That's who he must be. This guy must be the gardener. The only way she can see the world is through the lens of her old narrative. So the resurrected Christ must be the gardener and he must be the one who took the body away because that's what my narrative is over and over again, right? That somebody has taken him. So she says, if you've taken him, will you just tell me where he is? It's that old narrative over and over again. Well, on, in one sense, Mary was wrong, but Mary was also right. Why? Jesus is the new gardener, cultivating the soil of new creation. How cool is that? That even as she has a false narrative that she believes, that God takes her false narrative and somehow does something cool with it to where it's like, I am the gardener of new creation. Yes, wow. Jesus reframes her story. And I wanna suggest, you know, I talked about the angels, the way the angels spoke to her. I think Jesus does give her a little bit of a snap out of it moment here. Mary, don't you see something new is happening? Don't you see the good news? He's not scolding her here, but he's inviting her to open her eyes. Jesus says her name. He says, Mary, and she sees him. Waking up out of our cultural narratives and things that we believe about ourselves is not something we can really do on our own. And we can't shame people into waking up. That's what the church has often tried to do, right? That if we, just, if we just make people feel bad enough about themselves or about what they're doing or about the world, then they're gonna eventually see the light. No, that's not really how it works. That's us trying to do it. That's us trying to control it. We can't make people see God's light through convincing or through pressuring. That's the work of God. Gently and sometimes strongly saying our names, who we are, helping us to see ourselves and the world in a whole new way. I've had a lot of conversations with people recently about the state of our culture. 
Anytime somebody meets a pastor, they, they wanna make sure that the pastor affirms all of their cultural narratives, okay? So that's what tends to happen. So, oh, you're a pastor. Well, are you this kind of pastor and this kind of pastor and this kind of pastor? So I hear some say uh, in my neighborhood, um, oh, you're a pastor. Well, I hope you're not like those Christians, like those pastors. I even hear a lot, well, isn't the story of Jesus just that we need to focus more on inclusion and on the poor and less on doctrinal specifics. That's kind of one end that I hear, okay? I hear others who say, young Christians today focus way too much on social justice and not enough on personal holiness. We need to learn to live right. I hear kind of that other end of the perspective. But both of these narratives, I wanna suggest, have surrendered to cultural boxes The first one says life is really just about politics and social work. And I think it tends to cut the gospel off and emphasize our work and our ability to be inclusive and loving. What's the problem with that? There's a lot of times I'm not very inclusive and loving, right? I need the Holy Spirit for that, okay? The second one has the opposite problem. It cuts the gospel off and focuses on our work and becoming more moral, right? I can be better. I can achieve holiness on my own. Both forget about grace. Both forget about resurrection. The beauty of the gospel and the beauty of resurrection is that not one of our political or cultural narratives is fully true. The gospel is entirely different. When we understand God's grace, not just when we think we should be better people, but when we understand God's grace, it changes how we live. We will seek to live for God in our personal lives. And when we understand the grace and love of God fully, what has happened in Jesus Christ, we want for the systems of the world that have been broken by sin to fully experience healing and liberation. We want both of those things. I was talking to somebody this week and and they were throwing one of those cultural narratives and I said, the good news of the gospel is we get to care about both. (laughs) We get to care about the healing of our lives and the healing of the world. We don't have to choose a cultural box. In Christ, this problem of sin, of the overthrow of God's authority has been dealt with. The story has been retold. The usurpers have been forgiven and have been invited to join in God's rule and reign, which is centered on God's self-giving love in Christ. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we are invited also to have a new identity, a new way of defining ourselves in the world. Because of resurrection, the world's a different place. So Paul, in the letter that we read earlier, um, says Christ is the first fruits of God's intention for the whole creation. We live in a world where it still looks like darkness and chaos and brokenness rule. There's tremendous suffering in our world. Those who rule the world are often not the ones who do the right things. If Jesus rose from the dead, why isn't everything better? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why isn't everything right? Why isn't everything better? We live in this strange in-between time where God's new world has been inaugurated. It's been established that Jesus is king, but we still await its completion. We await seeing it in fullness. One metaphor is it's kind of like soldiers who've been stationed on a remote island. They're fighting this worldwide battle, okay? And the war ends, comes to an official end, but it takes some time for the word to reach them 
So they just keep fighting because they don't know. They keep struggling. And those who cling to this story, this gospel, this good news of the God who has conquered the final enemy once and for all, we are called to live in this way that we go, the war is over. Death has been defeated. And by how we live, we are proclaiming that good news to the world. We live as resurrection people, as people of new creation. But this means that we constantly live in this state of giving up the other ways that we've defined ourselves, the other ways that we've labeled ourselves. So here's a few of them. First of all, we're not primarily defined by our performance any longer, okay? We are not to yield to the belief that we are more special, valuable, and loved based on how we do on our job, how much money we make, or how much security we have. That's not our identity anymore. We are not primarily defined by the approval of others, getting people to like us. That's not our primary identity anymore. We're not primarily defined by materialism. We have to resist the myth that stuff will make a better way for us, will define us. We're not primarily defined by the American dream. America, with all of its beauty and majesty, is not perfect. I think everybody agrees that. And we still live in a country where there are many who are left out, where the American dream has let them down. So nationalism can't define who we are. That can't be our primary identity. And we're not primarily defined by our dreams. If your music never takes off, if you never get that dream job, if you never find that dream spouse, that is not your identity. Christ has risen from the dead and you are his. As we begin to live this new story, this new creation, this new identity, we point a longing and grieving world toward a better way. In a world that seeks to exert control, domination, manipulation, there is one who suffered it all and who gave his life for us. And then finally, we have a new mission. In addition to a new identity, we have a new mission. When Mary wakes up to who Jesus is, if you've ever noticed this, it's a really strange thing that happened. She clings on to him. Now, I think all of us would do that, right? Jesus rose from the dead and we missed him. I think we just want to stay right there, <laughs> cling on to him. And it's perhaps startling to us. Jesus says, don't hold on to me. Why is that going on? Isn't this normal and natural for her? Her friend was gone and now he's here. But Jesus has a mission for Mary. She has to go and tell the disciples what's happened. Mary was seen in the early church as the apostle to the apostles. She was the very first one, and she was the one who went and told the apostles who told other people. Okay, so she has this mission. He says, don't cling on to me. I have something for you to be in the world. I have somewhere for you to go. He's calling her to share this good news. And the best analogy I could think of, and it's limited, is kindergarten. Now, hang, hang on with me here. When our kids go to kindergarten... Parents, do you remember that moment when they cling on to your leg and they won't let go? Like this is a new experience and you're taking them there and they're going, I don't want to go to this strange place. Yeah, I've been to the open house and I've seen all this stuff, but I'm still not going, right? I remember Lucy holding on to us, please don't leave. Like I want to go to school, but I also don't want to. And she's clinging onto my leg and you don't want to let go either, do you? <laughs> As a parent, we don't want to let go. But by taking that step, we are empowering them to live and love in a way that was better than before. I think that might be a little image of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, you can't cling on to me the way that you did before. 
There is a mission here. Now, of course, we never outgrow becoming, de- uh, becoming dependent on Jesus. We're always dependent on him. But he calls us to different ways of living in his great love and ways of sharing it with the world. That's the beauty of mission. This witness of Mary and the disciples is passed on to us today. Mary sees the light and then she spreads it to the disciples. And then he started appearing to more people, okay? Eventually to more than 500 of his followers. And those 500 followers told some people, who told some people, who wrote letters to some people, who told some people, right? Some people went across seas to tell people. They went on donkeys across land to tell people. People told their children, who told their children, who told their children, who told their children. You get it? Keep going. And then somebody told you, and that's why you're here today. This story of God speaking into a world of darkness, you are part of that story. You are invited into that story. And it's a better story. It's good news. Christ is risen. And try that again. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. 